So uh, welcome to our next in our series of lectures on science and cooking. And uh, those of you who come all the time know that the first thing we do is acknowledge our sponsorship. Uh, Jose Andres, the uh, Think Food Group. Uh, Jose is coming very soon. Um, Alicia Foundation, both for financial support and intellectual support. Montferrand, Whole Foods on River Street, who uh, provide all the supplies for the lab. We're very fortunate in this class. The students get to eat their lab. Uh, Fusion Chef by um, Julabo. Uh, they supply the um, immersion uh, cookers for the uh, constant temperature and uh, the bank that supplies some of the uh, financial support. So also, this week we'd like to have a special thanks to uh, Chef Lydia Shire and Scampo, uh, who helped with some of the uh, arrangements for the chefs from last week. So special thanks to, to them. And as always, a special thanks for Christina, who's running around trying to organize things, without which we would never be able to do anything. So we should always thank her. And as I said, next week on the 10th, we have Jose Andres. Um, he's going to tell us about gelation. And this week, after the science uh, lecture, we have uh, Grant Akats, who's going to tell us something about um, texture and mouthfeel of, uh, of food. And I'm going to start by describing some of uh, what we learned in class uh, which directly reflects and describes the science behind um, the mouthfeel and the texture. And in particular, I want to describe an important ingredient in many foods now, uh, which is polymers and gelation. And the polymers are used for uh, thickening. Uh, they're modern kinds of thickeners, and I want to describe something about how they actually behave. So, uh, we had this at the end of the last class that the point is that, or the last uh, talk here, that uh, mouthfeel itself involves many different uh, scientific concepts, uh, not all of which we'll t uh, discuss today, but today in particular, I want to discuss uh, elasticity and viscosity and how you can control both the elasticity and the viscosity by using polymers. So, we start out with uh, thinking, actually, we start out with this little demonstration. This is a rubber ball, right? You're sitting in the front. You didn't realize you have a little homework problem. You have to watch this ball. I'll just leave it there. Remind me to come back to it. Oh, just before I finish talking. OK, good. So you saw that bounce. I want to describe the behavior of something like that. And I'm going to do that by actually introducing something. That's a, that's a beautiful example. You'll see why. I'm going to introduce something that we uh, discussed last week when Carlos Tejeda was here. This is olive oil, which he calls viscous, but you can see it's a solid. It's a gel. And I want to describe why it's a gel. What's really cool about this is that this is a mixture, the way he made it, was a mixture of olive oil, which is an oil, and water with some uh, gel uh, gelatin and some sugar to add flavor. But he mixed 
water and oil. When was the last time you mixed water and oil? They don't mix. But this, you can see, is almost perfectly mixed and is all really quite clear. Um, and so the question is, why do we get this to be solid? Why is that clear? I don't know the answer. That's something we debated. Um, we'll try and figure that out later in the, uh, in the um, lecture series. But why do we take, how can we take something that's really a fluid, which is olive oil, and make it into a solid, really by adding very, very small amount of material. And so the way we do that is uh, by adding polymer. And the way we have to describe this is by talking about something more than just something that's fluid and something that's elastic. We need to describe something that's in between. And that's viscoelasticity. So here's a simple example that will show you about viscoelasticity. Before I show this, I want to actually show a fairly common example. Can we come in and look at this? I can bring it over there. But I'd like to show this on the screen if we can. OK, what this is is cornstarch, just a fairly concentrated suspension of cornstarch. And you can see it looks fairly fluid-like. And if I stir it fairly slowly, it's fluid-like. But look what happens if I pull quickly. It's solid-like. I can almost hold the whole plate up if I pull it fast. And I'm going to show you this. And you'll probably be able to see it just here. If I pull slowly, I can pull my spoon through. But look what happens if I pull fast. So its behavior, its behavior depends on the time scale that you're looking. If you look very rapidly, it behaves like a solid. If you look at long times, it behaves like a fluid. And here's a little animation that shows this. Watch carefully. Imagine a ball dropping onto this cornstarch. If we drop quickly, it bounces. But if you wait a long time, if you watch slowly, it's a fluid. It sinks. And just to go back to this little piece of silly putty that I had, if you look here, this was a ball. It bounced. One did it quickly. But now you can see it beginning to flow. Can, you, can we show this? This was a ball a few minutes ago. But you see now it's beginning to flow. It depends on the time scale. So something, whether it's elastic or viscous, whether it flows like a fluid or behaves elastically like a solid, depends on what time scale you're looking. If you look quickly, it's elastic. If you look at long times, it's viscous. It's a fluid. Here's another little animation. I'm going to play it again in case you mix it. This is looking more microscopically. This is looking at the polymers, which I'm about to describe, that are inside, how they actually behave. Let's play this again, see if it plays. Watch this one bounces. You see the polymers hold their shape. But if you wait slowly, they spread apart. And that's what I'm going to describe right now.
So in food, there are many different types of polymers. For example, there's polysaccharides, there's sugars, glucose, sucrose. They can form these long molecules. That's what a polymer is, a long, flexible molecule. If it's linear, if it's like this, this is going to be the most effective at giving this kind of behavior. You can also have branch molecules. They're much less effective because they don't spread as much. They're more compact because of the branching. There are other kinds of polymers. For example, uh, starches, pectins, gums, what you find in wheat and potatoes, you know that you can thicken things with these. Uh, this is another type of uh, thickening agent, like these polymers. Uh, the way that works is that the starch has small granules. In, um, w when you put them in water, they swell and they release polymers. This is what cornstarch is. And so this cornstarch has the same, it's okay, has the same behavior as these pieces of gel. The difference is in the cornstarch, there's what, how much did you put in, Daniel? About half, 50% or something? It's about 50% by weight, about half again the amount of water there is. Whereas in these pieces of gel, there's only a few percent at most, there's probably less than 1% of the polymer. So polymers are much more efficient at making something elastic or viscous than is a, um, uh, a starch. Uh, there's other kinds of uh, common polymers, proteins. They're just chains of amino acids. They have this unique behavior that they're folded in a certain way. When you heat them, they unfold. When they unfold, they spread much more. They can't refold as well. And so they form a network when, they, uh, when they're unfolded. This a gelatin is an excellent example of that. Uh, the uh, kind of thickeners that we're using here are xanthan gums. And I'll show you some examples of that. Here are some mixtures of xanthan gum and water. And this is, in here, there's this amount of xanthan gum. Really a very, 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 very small amount of xanthan gum. But look, it's much, much more viscous than water. And this is about three times as much but still, relative to the water, a very small amount. Look at this. It's almost a solid. Can, you, can we see this one? See how that's almost solid-like? Tiny amounts, tiny amounts of these polymers can lead to drastic changes. Slides again, thanks. La drastic changes in the, in the behavior of water. So you're adding one, one and a half percent by weight of water, and the polymers are spreading out and dramatically changing the behavior of the water. So for example, for proteins, the way you can understand proteins, and you use this all the time, you use this if you make these different kinds of thickened food. For proteins, what you do is you heat them up. That causes the protein to unfold. 
And when it unfolds, it starts to entangle. It starts to look like this, quite literally look like this. And this gets thickened. The thing about proteins, particularly if you use uh, uh, various kinds of milks and things like that, then you have to be careful. They'll curdle. They'll re-collapse. The xanthan gum won't do this. Xanthan, xanthan gum is one of the most efficient uh, materials for giving some viscous and elastic properties. We call that viscoelasticity, something that's both viscous and elastic. So how can we understand where the elasticity of these polymers come from? The way to understand it is that you get these networks, you get these long linear molecules that are spreading through the fluid. They want to spread out, taking up as much space as possible. So the weight, the, the, the actual amount of material is very small, but they spread through the, uh, through the uh, water or through the, the, the fluid. And if they form bonds of some sort, some kind of chemical electrostatic bond, usually not covalent bonds, but they can be, usually they're not. If they form some kind of bond, then they form this network. And it's this network that actually gives the material its elastic properties. That's why this gel is elastic. It's primarily fluid, but there's this 1% of this polymer network inside the fluid. And that makes it solid. That makes it elastic. So how can we understand something about the molecular elasticity of the polymer? The polymers have a unique kind of elasticity. It's not something that we've talked about before. It's not like a normal spring, but in the end it behaves just like a normal spring. But the reason it behaves like a spring is because of what's called entropy. It's because there's lots of different ways of configuring it. So if I have a polymer and I stretch it all the way out. I can take this piece of paper, well better yet, I can take this spaghetti and stretch it all the way out. There's only one way I can keep this when it's completely stretched. But if I make it a little shorter, then it starts to bend. And if it does that, there are several different ways that it can configure itself. There's many different ways. If I make it shorter still, there's a whole bunch of different ways. And when in nature you have something that has lots of different possible configurations, that's the way the molecule is, in a sense, the happiest. That's the way its energy is the lowest. So if I stretch it out, I reduce the number of configurations, and that actually takes energy. Remember, anytime you take energy, you store energy. That's what a spring does. And similarly, if I take this and I compress it more than it wants to be, it, 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 can't, it just can't occupy the same amount of space. So here's the number of states that it has when it's a natural length. But if I try to compress it more, then I can't fold it as much. I have to squeeze it out on the side. And in fact, as you compress it even more, the number of states decreases, just as the number of states decreased when I stretched it. So there's a natural length, and if I pull on it or push on it, 
the number of states decreases, and that is like storing energy. Anytime I store energy, that behaves exactly like a spring. And so a polymer, at its natural length, behaves exactly like a spring. But we can understand that, in fact, even in a more detail, because the only thing that tells a polymer, please take this configuration or this configuration or this configuration, is thermal energy. So the energy of the spring, the energy, is just thermal energy, or KT. Its natural length is L, some whatever length it is. So this tells you exactly then, this tells you an energy and a length scale, and the energy tells you the spring constant. And from that, we can model everything. And this is a very reasonable way of thinking about it. That same network is just like a network of springs that are connected together. The energy of each spring is just the thermal energy, KT. So we can calculate the elastic modulus, or the elasticity of the network, exactly the same way that we calculated the uh, elasticity before when we talked about things. The natural length is L. And so the elasticity is just kT over L cubed. And that's our equation. So you can see what this tells us. It tells us that the elasticity depends on thermal energy and the length between these bonds or the meshes, this length. And so we could use this, for example, we can make a simple calculation. And here I just took it. I, I won't go through the calculation, but from that formula, I can calculate what a characteristic mesh size is. And I did this for uh, a gel that's not unlike this gel. I won't go through the numbers, but this is the typical number for the length scale. It's a few nanometers, 10 nanometers. It's larger, much larger than water molecules because there's lots of water molecules running between it. But still, it's not enormous. And so if I put like those granules from the starch or from the cornstarch, they're much larger than this characteristic length scale. There's different ways of getting rid of the, of the network. So you can immediately understand what happens when you heat this for something like gelatin. Then all you do is you break these bonds. And once you break the bonds, then you no longer have this permanent elastic network, and things can begin to melt and begin to flow. OK, so that's the elasticity. Now let's understand in the same kind of language, why something like this, where you add not so much xanthan, this is half a percent by weight, half a percent, a very small amount, but it makes it very, very uh, viscous. It increases the viscosity. Let's understand something about the origin of this increase in viscosity. And that, in the end, is what's, uh, the, uh, what, what xanthan is used for primarily. It's control of viscosity. And if you want to control, if you add enough, it becomes a gel. It becomes a solid. But let's understand something about the viscosity. And the way you can do this is imagine now I have these molecules, and they become entangled. 
And so what I've done here is I've drawn each molecule a different color so you can see. All I've done is I've taken them, I've spread them out. I haven't made them really uh, uh, very, very curly, but they're, 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 they're uh, not straight. They're spread out and they entangle. And the concentration and their length tells you how much they entangle. But all the molecules are the same. So that's what they really look like. They look exactly like this network. You can't really distinguish now. Well, I can show you. I can distinguish them because I can do color. And so you can see this molecule here goes like this. But if I make it all the same color, you don't really know whether it's going like this or like this or like this. It's crossing. You can't tell. You can't distinguish the molecules. So this begins, begins to look like this gel network that we had before. And so how can we understand something about the nature of the viscosity? Well, remember, viscosity means that the things have to flow. They have to move across one another. And um, I'll show you, well, I'll show you uh, a, a couple of cartoons to understand this. Then I'll show you a real physical example. The cartoon is, first of all, imagine I want to well, imagine I want to understand something about the nature of this. Remember, if I look back here, if I look back here, this looks like a gel, but I didn't put the bonds in. So now, if it were a gel and I apply a force to it, I apply a stress, I pull everything, and if I do it fairly rapidly, then Wherever they cross, they can't move apart. And if I were to say right here, if I did it fast enough, those places where they entangle, if they were bonds, that would be a gel. So they look elastic. They look solid-like if I don't let them relax, if I do it quickly enough so that they run into each other. And if I want to determine how many bonds they are, I would just measure the elasticity. Remember, if I, remember, if I measure at short times, if I measure very quickly, they don't relax, and I measure the elasticity. But of course, they can relax. And so if I look at long times, I look at one molecule, then I want to pull it out. That's what the relaxation is. If I do it quickly, again, it runs into these constraints. So the way I can tell how many constraints there are, I make an estimate of what the elasticity is at very high frequencies. And that tells me the number of constraints. But then if I go very slowly, if I go very slowly, I can pull it out. And let me show you an example of this. Here's my model network. I guess I better do it here. This is spaghetti. It's cooked spaghetti. And this behaves exactly like this polymer network. It's more concentrated, behaves exactly. If I pull quickly, it's a solid, right? It's an elastic solid. But if I pull any one of these things, pull it slowly, I can pull it out. <laughs> Eventually, it breaks because it's it's very, uh, it, uh, it sticks. But you can see, I can pull it out. 
And that's exactly what happens. If you do it very rapidly, it's a solid. But if you wait long enough, what happens is what's called reptation. The molecule can slip out slowly, like this, and it can relax. But that takes a long time. So the relaxation time takes a long time. And how much time it takes depends on the number of constraints. It depends on the elasticity. In fact, we can look at different things, and this is exactly what happens. Here, these, these uh, spaghetti, these molecules, are much shorter. And so they flow more easily. I can pull them out much, much more easily. They're still entangled, but they're not as entangled. So it depends on the concentration and on the length of the polymer. The shorter they are, the less entangled they are. What about if I use those branched molecules that I showed before? Well, here's my model branched molecule. See, it's branched, right? Now, it doesn't form a solid, right? I can run my hands through very easily. Same concentration I run my hands through because they're much more compressed. They can't entangle. It's the entanglements that lead to the constraints, that lead to the elasticity and to the relaxation. Can my slides back? And so if I want to calculate the viscosity, what I need to know is how long it takes to pull the molecule out. That depends on the relaxation time, which I just showed you, and on the elasticity. And from that, we get our second equation of the week for the viscosity. So the viscosity depends on the product of the elasticity and the relaxation time. And that's why it's this entanglement of these very long molecules tells you why you get both viscosity and elasticity from a very, very small concentration of molecules such as xanthan gum. Another nice, really nice example is, this is probably, no, maybe this, is um, ramen noodles, right? Actually, hold on, let me get this. Y'all know this is all This is totally entangled, right? It's one piece of solid. These are a little bit, but again, I can untangle it by pulling it. But it's solid-like because it's completely entangled. And that's, of course, what gives the ramen noodles its particular characteristics. Okay, so this shows you what entanglement is. Um, I showed you basically what the concentration dependence are, is. The, it's the amount of entanglement. You can see that because it entangles, it's a very, very strong concentration dependence. The molecules want to spread out as much as they can, and they begin to entangle. And that's why you get this very strong dependence of, con of uh, elasticity um, on concentration. Um, and short polymers, of course, don't do this nearly as much. You really want these long, linear polymers. Now, there's a lot of other things. Here's one example. If you, um, with these polymers, if you put enough force on, enough shear stress, 
you can actually cause them to disentangle, and then they flow more easily, and they undergo what's called shear thinning. And a good example of, of this is ketchup. Animation courtesy of Naveen. <laughs> and so with that, um, I think I tried to show you why you get these different behaviors with these um, thickening agents, the polymer, the starches. They all have the same characteristic that small quantities of material lead to increases in elasticity or in viscosity. And so with that, thank you. And let me now call on uh, Grant Akats to uh, tell us about the real culinary art of mouthfeel. All right, welcome everyone. Thank you for coming out. Looks like we have a pretty, uh, pretty full house. How was the science lecture? <laughs> All right, so what we're gonna do today is we're gonna talk about food science, but specifically in the realm of cocktails. Uh, we opened a new project about mid to late April called the Aviary. Uh, it's a very progressive cocktail bar lounge um, in Chicago in the Meatpacking District. And it employs a lot of the same uh, technique, technology, innovation, creative expression that Alinea has done in the culinary arts we're trying to do in the cocktail world. So I have a short video that I want to run that is just going to kind of show the aviary a little bit about the cocktails, give you a feel for the room, um, kind of what we tried to accomplish, and then we'll delve into a little bit more of the specifics.
so it's not your average bar by any means. When we, when we opened Alinea, we made it a point to say that we had to embrace um, technology and science in order for us to manipulate and construct uh, the foodstuffs in a manner that was new, exciting, um, pleasing in a lot of ways. So about two years ago, we were approached by a large hotel company that said, hey, we want you to put a restaurant and a bar in our hotel. And we had never thought about opening a bar before. For whatever reason, we were always very in the box, thinking that we were dealing with food and food only. But then once we started thinking about it, we were like, hey, there's no reason we can't utilize everything that we've learned in gastronomy and apply that to the liquid world, basically, in cocktails. So we really started thinking about it. And uh, as it turns out, it's incredibly similar. Uh, in fact, cocktails really don't even have to be liquid, which we will get into a little bit later. I brought two gentlemen with me. Uh, first, Craig Schottler is the guy that runs the aviary. Uh, he spent a little over three years at Alinea as a cook, studied as a chef at Johnson & Wales, and uh, has taken the, taken the reins at the aviary. So, Craig. And also a former cook at Alinea turned research and development chef slash jack of all trades. He's the one who makes all the videos, takes all the still photos, maintains the website, um, helps publish all our cookbooks and that sort of thing. Christian Seal. So I think Craig now is just going to give you a basic philosophic overview of the cocktail program at the aviary, kind of what our goals are, how we're trying to accomplish them, and then we'll dig even deeper and see how science and technology plays a role. Uh, well, thank you, everybody. I, I got to say, I never thought I'd be standing in a Harvard lecture law, <laughs> lecture hall um, as a cook, but thank you for having us. We appreciate it. Um, so what we did with the aviary is we wanted to create something different because there's so many in, in today's day and age the the classic cocktail uh, Resurgence has uh, blown up everywhere um, Similar to you know, we have the violet hour in Chicago here. You have a bar called drink um, You have milk and honey in New York and all these little classic iconic cocktail bars and people are opening them up left and right And becoming a dime a dozen and everybody's starting to carry the same thing so once something becomes too popular it gets dull and it gets sort of boring. So what we've tried to do is do what Alinea did to food six years ago um, by thinking about things differently. And why does a cocktail have to be served in a glass? Does a cocktail have to be liquid? Your general cocktails are always served in a coupe, which is a, a stemmed champagne saucer, if you will, a rocks glass for your cocktails served on ice or down. Then you have your Collins, which is our, your, your tall cocktails, your long drinks, generally carbonated. Um, but they always put them in those three glasses, regardless of what it is. So our cocktails based on the glassware goes in, or the glassware based on the cocktail it goes in. So we've, we've taken this philosophy of running a bar like a restaurant. I've never bartended. I've never tended bar one day in my life. I've only cooked. So we've taken this philosophy, we've built this restaurant, if you will, 
with the idea of it being a restaurant and not being a bar. So there's no bar. There's actually no physical bar for you to walk up and sit at and order a cocktail. All the cocktails come out of a kitchen. We, don't hire, we didn't hire bartenders. We hired cooks. Um, each, the kitchen is designed just like a pass in, in, in a normal restaurant. There's stations. If you go to a kitchen, the chef de partie of the meat station doesn't pick up the, the pastries, doesn't pick up the cold apps. They pick up the meat dishes. When you go to a bar, your bartender has to know every cocktail you could possibly want and know where all the product is for that. So there may be one bottle of green chartreuse in the bar, and it's all the way down there. And the person placed the order over here. So now you're sitting here taking the order. You got to go all the way down there, get the bottle, come all the way back, make the drink, walk all the way down there, put the bottle away, and then come back and hand him his cocktail. This is gravely inefficient, especially from uh, the mentality of a cook. Can you imagine cooking with the stove up a flight of stairs, then coming back down to cut something and going back up to see if it's done? It just it's, it doesn't make any sense. So we've built stations in this kitchen that are based on a restaurant. So a, a bartender, if you will, a cook, a chef, doesn't necessarily have to move more than three feet. They have everything around them, from an, an insulated well for their ice, to a recessed well for their bottles, to a drawer that's refrigerated, to a drawer that's a freezer, to uh, 25 sets of shaker tins. Instead of having to use one and wash it every time, you just put it and grab another set. Um, so we've taken all of these steps of cooks, of this, this chef's mentality, and broadening it into the bar world from a functionality standpoint and from a product standpoint. So you can see the cocktails are essentially their dishes. The same idea and how we create them is the same way chef creates dishes at Alinea. Everything is an ingredient. Ice is an ingredient. Everybody associates ice with being something that cools something down and dilutes it, but it can also flavor something. There's no reason why you can't have milk as ice, or, or cranberry pearls, or uh, Fresno chilies, or, or anything can possibly be ice, because it's, it's an ingredient. And then, why serve things in glass? If you guys are familiar with this, this is a, it's called a vacuum pot. It's typically used for coffee. So on the bottom, we have a clear cocktail. Turn the Bunsen burner on, it goes up, it infuses. You pull the flame away, it cuts the vacuum. The cocktail goes down, and here you have an infused table-side cocktail. Um, so it, it's about taking the idea of what it is to be a cocktail. So you've got alcohol, you've got sugar, you've got water in the form of ice or not in the form of ice, and you have uh, acid depending on the style of cocktail. So it's taking those things and manipulating how they are. Does everything have to be shaken and served in a cocktail glass? Could be served in a bottle in a brown paper bag. Why not? It's to create an experience. It's not just a matter of you don't come into the aviary and get and, and just consume a cocktail, we try and create an experience based on how you consume it, from the way things look to the way things sound, to making it participatory, giving you a task. You have to do something in order to drink this cocktail. Because it, it makes you more engaged and involved, and you have this, this sense of invested interest in this drink that you have. Uh, so we've taken th this philosophy of running a bar like a restaurant, and one of the things that is pinnacle is how we serve things. So we don't want to serve cocktails just in glasses like we talked about. So we've, we've collaborated with uh, a gentleman of the name Martin Kastner, who uh, Chef will go into a little further about, um, in creating custom service pieces as they did uh, for Linea. So real quickly, as Craig mentioned, going back to 2002, 
when it became very obvious that not all of the food that we were creating, one, was aesthetically appealing on the pre-existing serviceware, which was plate, bowl, right? Eaten with a fork or spoon or knife. Um, there was also functional aspects that when, you, when technology was advancing, design wasn't keeping up with it. So we would create, we would have the ability with liquid nitrogen or um, super chillers or anti-griddles to create really thin sheets of ice, but we had no way to get it to the guests in the dining room because it would melt so rapidly. So I collaborated with Martin and he came up with a whole set of plateware and serviceware um, for Alinea. And then, as we said, once we approached the aviary, we said, well, again, what is a cocktail? And why does it have to be served in a glass? Or can the glass be manipulated in a different way to produce inherently a different result? It's not simply a drinking vessel, right? So Craig might go through a couple of specifics. Uh, so this is a, a piece that Martin created. We call it the porthole, because it looks like a porthole. The idea, we, we, were, we were sitting and talking, and we made the analogy, if you go to a steakhouse and you get a 95-ounce steak, after bite six, you're kind of bored of steak and you still have 6,000 more bites to go. <laughs> so the idea is how can we not make you dull of steak um, and in the form of a cocktail? So if you drink a daiquiri, you have six ounces of daiquiri. From sip one to sip seven, it still tastes like a daiquiri. It may get a little warmer, but it still has the same flavor profile, the same sensations. So we created this, and it's more like an infusion tank. So we fill the, it's, it's two pieces of glass that are circular, and there's a band in the middle um, made out of a, a, a plastic. And we fill the inside with, with different botanicals and spices and herbs, from citrus peels to teas to, to dried hibiscus leaves and freeze-dried pomegranate seeds and, and so on and so forth. And we fill up the flask with a, with a cocktail base. And as it sits on the table, it's going to infuse. And in order for us to capture that, and, and Martin coming from the design world, it was actually funny, we, we, had a, we were sitting around having a conversation and thinking, how can we make people not drink all of it at once? <laughs> and he goes, give him a small glass. So we serve a one ounce glass with this, and now this is a pitcher. It's not, you don't drink from this. So you have this little tiny glass that you pour at your table multiple times, and at every time you pour it, the cocktail changes. It changes not only in flavor, but it changes in color and aesthetics and aroma, because the longer it sits inside this flask, the more flavor it takes on from what you're drinking. Um, so that was our, our response to, to making something evolve constantly throughout your, uh, your, the time you consume it. Uh, this is a, a custom glassware from Martin called the light bulb. Um, the cocktail that goes inside of it is uh, it's ginger snow. We take ginger juice, lime juice, and water. We charge it with nitrous and an ISI canister. We expel it into liquid nitrogen. By doing so, it freezes so rapidly, it maintains the structure of the aeration of the liquid and keeps it uh, fluffy, if, if you will. It's a very delicate, soft shavings of ice. So we, we cascade it up the side of the glass, and on top of it, we, we do a bunch of garnishes. We take uh, Peychaud bitters, which is, uh, if you're anybody's familiar with the cocktail of Sazerac, it's what makes it red. It's that bright red um, bitter. It comes in small bottles. It's flavor profile of vanilla, uh, clove, and uh, anise. Um, so we take that, we set it with uh, agar-agar, which is a seaweed derivative to make a fluid gel out of it, and we make a, a pudding in the consistency of about toothpaste. 
So we garnish it with the pudding, and there's micro shiso, micro mint, uh, finger lime cells, lime zest, and uh, rings of Fresno chilies. And in the craft, uh, there's, there's uh, vodka, sugar, water, and citric acid. This is our plan, the Moscow Mule, um, the, the, the classic Los Angeles cocktail. Um, and on top is a swizzle stick. Um, the swizzle stick is made out of lemongrass. Generally, swizzle sticks are made out of wood. Um, so what the, the guest is instructed at the table is you get the craft, you pour it over the ice, you insert the lemongrass frayed side down into the cocktail, and you rub it in between both hands as if you're going to start a fire to swizzle your cocktail together. And the idea for the shape is he created a, a, a drinking vessel that had the straw and the glass in one. So if you were to have a normal straw, you couldn't sip up the garnishes. You wouldn't be able to get up the microgreens. And without getting all the garnishes up, you lose the texture and the sensations of a cocktail that's not all liquid but has some solid elements to it. So we couldn't use a straw. So it's got a, a mouth that's a little larger than a straw. Um, so when you consume it, you can still get the liquid, but the garnishes will still come out, and you can drink the cocktail as it is intended. Uh, this is called the cloche. Um, cloche means bell in French. You'll see it a lot in uh, classic French cooking, the inverted bowl on top of a plate to keep things warm, or if a table is, if, if a guest is up at the table, sometimes they'll come over and bring this to, to maintain the integrity of the dish. So we took the idea of that by maintaining um, and capturing something inside the drink. So we play with a lot of things that are linear having to do with aromas, and you don't really see aromas in cocktails besides what's on the surface of the liquid that you consume, whether it's a lime wheel, a couple drops of bitter, a tincture, uh, expressed orange peel on top, expressed lemon or whatever. But you, you can never capture something for a longer period of time or something that's not a liquid. Or So in our case, we're trying to capture a gas. Um, so any form of smoke, whether it's hickory or applewood or burnt cinnamon, um, we fill up this container, uh, and, and it's, it's two pieces. It's a, it's a larger glass bell and then the, the drinking vessel, and it fits over the top. And there's a hole on top where we can put a straw. So every time you sip out of the straw, the gas or the, the vapors and the aromas are funneled to the top right below your, where your nose is. So every time you sip, you have the aroma that pairs with the cocktail that it's going in. Uh, this is a, a hot cocktail glass. This is a porcelain that Martin makes handmade in his shop. Um, it's ribbed on the sides so the cocktail can be warm and the glass can stay warm, but there's less contact of porcelain to your hand, and it allows air to flow through, so the drink is never hot to touch, or the, the vessel never gets too warm to drink out of. Um, and we serve a, a hot chocolate cocktail in there. And one of the other... Uh, Going into more of the, the, the technology and less on the, the service pieces, um, we've, we've implemented a, a drink using uh, the piece of equipment to, uh, to chef's right um, called a rotovap or a, a, a distiller to make a cocktail to play with people's minds. So the cocktail looks like it's a glass of ice water when indeed it's a root beer float. <laughs> so we take, we make a stock. Uh, out of flavors of root beer, so sassafras, sarsaparilla, orange peel, ginger, dried orange, uh, tailong peppercorn, black peppercorn, uh, galanga, and birchwood, and applewood, and, and, and a slew of other things. And it comes out this really murky, nasty-looking brown, um, which we all associate root beer being a, a dark color. Um, so we make this stock, and then we run it through the, the distiller, 
and it comes out crystal clear, but tastes like root beer. And it's not bitter, and it's not sweet, and it's not salty. Um, so we have this clear root beer water. Um, from that, we add uh, kirsch, which is a cherry eau de vie, and it's also clear. Um, lactic acid, uh, which is the acid you find in, in milk, which allows uh, the texture of the cocktail to have a very creamy, um, ice cream-esque uh, flavor profile. Uh, we add um, uh, liquor 43, which is a, a vanilla liqueur. We carbonate it in-house, and then uh, we serve it on ice cubes that are made from distilled vanilla. So we take vanilla beans, blend them with water, steep them overnight, run them also through the Rotovap. That comes out crystal clear. Now we have clear vanilla water. Um, we make the ice cubes out of that. So as it's sitting in your cocktail and as the ice cubes melt, you add vanilla into your cocktail, making as if your ice cream was melting. So it makes it more vanilla-esque, more root beer and vanilla, more like a root beer float. So you'll notice the little white Chinese takeout to-go boxes under you there. Grab those. In, inside, there's two little plastic containers. Take the top one. Careful, they're liquid. Pop the top. Take a smell. Is that recognizable to anyone? What? Chilies. So that is a lot of Fresno chilies <laughs> that back home a couple of days ago were basically juiced and as Craig mentioned, put through this machine and he's gonna run you through it really quickly after I'm done. The idea here is something that we discovered when we got our first road of Apidolinia. It's very interesting what goes through the machine. So I don't like really spicy food and in fact, there's a relationship between spicy food or caspium and alcohol. Um, they really accentuate each other on the palate. So if you're eating really spicy food, a lot of times people will say, well, drink a beer or a low-proofed cocktail or a light, lighter alcoholic level wine. Otherwise, you blow your head off, you know? The thing with the Rotovap is it allows you to put the flavor of Fresno chili through but with none of the heat. So if you want to take a little sip of that, you'll notice it's not hot at all. And in fact, somewhat flavorless, really. It's more the aroma than anything that you're going to get. And it'll linger and kind of go up your nose. Do you want to give them the... So the, the idea behind... Uh, am I still in errors? Um, you, you put your flavor, so in this case it's Fresno chilies, which are also called red jalapenos. Um, you put your juice inside this flask, you assemble it, you turn on your condenser, your condenser is going to send propylene glycol through these coils, cooling it down. Uh, this is a water bath below, which you can use to heat up your liquid, to then, obviously, we try and distill things at as low temperature as possible, because we don't lose in those volatile aromas. Um, so you've got this cooled down, everything is assembled, you pull a vacuum. So you pull a vacuum, whenever you pull a vacuum, you can boil things at a lower temperature. So we don't have to boil it at, at, uh, at ambient. 
uh, or, or, or normal atmospheric pressure, um, so things will boil without a, the application of heat. So the vacuum pulled, this starts to boil. When things boil, obviously the, 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 uh, the vapors go somewhere, so they come up, they come through this chamber, and they come into the, the condensing coils, which then they condense and then form into the liquid and then fall down and drop into this flask, um, crystal clear. Um, we put everything from chilies, obviously, Craig mentioned sassafras, vanilla. Um, some chefs that we know have put dirt. <laughs> I don't know those chefs, not us. Um, leather, hay, all kinds of stuff goes through there. So it's a lot of fun. All right, what do we have now? We have a video about, uh, about the machine, I believe. So you see uh, one of the unfortunate prep cooks juicing uh, red beetroot. And as Craig mentioned, you see it in the flask there, spinning away under vacuum, turning that red beet juice perfectly crystal clear. This also allows us to play with consistency because um, sugars and salts don't go through. If they do, it's in a very, very uh, minuscule quantity. So now what we have is a, a perfectly clear, highly aromatic beet water that we reintroduce the level of sugar that we want to bring it up to the degrees bricks that we feel is appropriate for whatever we're using it for. If we want to introduce acid, we can put whatever in it we want, citric, malic, whatever. Um, and then we can season it with salt to the degree that we want. All right, what do we have next? The ice flour. So one of the things both culinarily and in the cocktail world that's really important is freezing and ice, right? So for a long time, whoops, for a long time, we've um, tried to come up with ways to make snow. And as it turns out, I thought, oh, this would be really easy. Like, you just freeze water, right? <laughs> as it turns out, to make a snowflake is actually virtually impossible, they tell me. So we kept going back to the drawing board. We, we contacted a company called PolyScience, and he tried to make a snow machine for us because what we really wanted was to make flavored snow. Like, imagine taking that when you're young and you first fresh snowfall and you go out and you get the big handful and your mom's like, don't eat the yellow stuff. <laughs> It'd be really cool to make a cherry snow or a lemon snow or whatever. So our solution was um, to take this service piece made from Martin, has a core of stainless steel that we drop in liquid nitrogen freeze it very thoroughly, and you saw Christian with these misters, and he's just gently misting a yuzu, which is Japanese citrus-flavored uh, water, over this very, very cold core to make about as close to snow as we can get. And the cool thing about it is when you put it in your palate, it instantly disappears, which when you think about palate cleansers and that application of what would normally be sorbet or granite or that sort of thing. Um, what you really want is something to hit the palate and just vanish. You want it to cleanse and go. So this gives us that ability.
Another thing out of just chance is uh, you saw a scraping frozen condensation off of uh, what we call the anti-griddle. So Philip Preston from PolyScience created this piece of machinery that gets negative 40 degrees Celsius on the surface. And um, you turn it on and let it run. And if there's enough humidity in the air, then you have this basically snow on the top. So now we're trying to utilize that in some of our cocktail and culinary uh, applications. You want this one? Uh, so one thing, another piece of equipment that um, Philip Preston and PolyScience have created, is it's, it's called a recirculating chiller. Um, the exact opposite of recirculating chiller is what we know as an immersion circulator in which modern chefs use as sous vide. Um, so it's a water bath with a, a, um, a machine in it that circulates the water at a temperature that you set so it maintains the same temperature throughout this water bath at all times. So a recirculating chiller does the exact opposite. Instead of heating it, it cools it. So you make a, a mixture of water and alcohol and you put it in this and you can chill it down to negative 35 degrees um, based on your ratio of, of water to, to, to alcohol. Um, and, and one thing we, we, we've, we played around with doing um, is this, what's called uh, super chilling water, um, which we will. So this is the machine. You put a thing of water in it. It looks like it's plain, clear water. Pour it, still looks like water. Yep, still looks like water. There should be audio with this. Do we not have audio? Uh-oh, not water anymore. Again, there's nothing wrong with, like, you know, blended margarita. I know oh, nobody, yeah. you know what I mean? Right. If you did it with... You did. Perfect ingredients. Perfect. And, and then we're also freezing the water already in the cocktail that's going to keep it cold without adding water that's going to dilute it later right. on. So right. as it sits, it's not going to dilute. Gonna, right. It, it, it's going to dilute itself, which will be keeping the integrity of the cocktail. Right. It's perfect. Right. Like, you're, you know, you're saying the cheesy... Fridays with the strawberry daiquiri. Or so what? We right. make it with perfectly ripe strawberries and beautiful... You know, we make it perfect. Who cares of this? Pina colada. And in fact, it's kind of funny. Yeah. The pina colada, right, right. there. umbrella, coconut. Right. Right. Delicious. Painkillers. You know, any, you can take any, any cocktail that tiki books. Uh, They're all great, yeah. Tropical, yeah, tiki. Right. But the presentation of having a liquid in a, in a vessel and coming to the table and pouring it, and then when you're done pouring it, it's actually the slushes. Right. Pretty cool. It's pretty cool. So we've we've kind of struggled with this because as it turns out, freezing in order uh -oh. water in water balloons in this blast chiller, which gets down to quick. negative thirty. The outside freezes before the inside freezes, so we're allowed to keep an ice cube that is actually liquid in the center. So then by draining the ice cube, now I've got a hollow ice cube. That's what I'm 
So this is another application that we use these recirculating chiller for. Uh, this is a cocktail called In the Rocks. It's our, 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 our plan in old fashioned. Dinosaur egg chef. Okay. Uh, the question is whether or not we're gonna have to let it temper, or if it's better if it's this frozen so then it will shatter quickly. Right. Oh, that looks cool. Look at that. Yeah. So, what do you have inside? It's old fashioned. Buffalo cherry old fashioned. Okay. So buffalo cherry stem on syrup. Should I whack it? I would whack it. So now your old fashioned is on the rocks. That's pretty cool. And the ice cube, the wall of the ice cubes are thick enough that it shouldn't melt dilute. and dilute too quickly. Like instantly. It's perfect. Look at that. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's pretty fun. Awesome. The possibilities on what we can do with this, it's endless. Imagine this being a distilled juice, this being colored. Now we can do add fruit juices to it, rhubarb, sorrel, some type of herb, even different liqueurs we could do this because we can get it to freeze, which is not the issue now. It's participatory from the customer's standpoint, and they will crack. The act of them cracking is now giving them something to do, and it also adds an auditory experience with it because you hear the sound of the cracking and the sound of the knocking similar to the sound that a bartender makes when he's shaking a cocktail or even stirring his own cocktail. The experience that this technique will provide to me is really cool and now you just don't see it anywhere where the, the customer gets to actually experience this kind of new way of drinking a cocktail which would be served on the rocks. So the video shows us when we first started doing it, we used a blast freezer and found out to be gravely inefficient and inconsistent. And since then, we have done, uh, we've used the recirculating chiller to do so. So we take a water balloon, we fill it up with about 185 to 190 grams of water. We tie the balloon, we place the balloon in, a, in the super chiller set at negative 12 degrees for eight and a half minutes. Um, we, by doing so, we've found out the time and temperature it takes to produce about uh, an eighth of an inch thick wall on the inside. So now that we've got this ice that's frozen on the outside, the outside of the inside of the balloon and hollow in the center. So after that, we pop the balloon or just peel the, the, the latex away. Uh, we take a drill. We drill through the ice. We take a syringe. We use the syringe to pull the water out of the inside of the ice. Then we fill the same syringe up with an old-fashioned. We put the old-fashioned back into the ice, and then we refreeze the hole. So now we have our cocktail inside of the ice, where an old-fashioned is generally served on the ice. We serve it in the ice, then you break it, and now you're on the ice. Um, so the, the ice looks something similar to this. This has been hollowed out, and it's hollow. And empty, I already drank that one. What do we got next? I hit it. So that's, this is the finished cocktail. Um, 
an old-fashioned is generally served with uh, an orange peel in it. So we serve this. The, the service piece is also from Martin Kastner. Um, it goes to the table like this. The guest is uh, given a, a, a sling that Martin makes. It's a, it's, a wooden, it's, a, it's a round wooden piece that fits on the top of a glass with a ball bearing in the center. It's held in by an elastic band. You hold down the, the wooden piece that's on top of the glass. You lift up the ball bearing and let go, and it shoots down and <laughs> cracks the ice. Hey, gin and tonic. Gin and tonic. So one thing that we've done is playing with the manipulation of textures as far as cocktails go. Um, and, and we had discussed how the cocktails have to be uh, liquids. Um, so we started playing around with the ideas and techniques that we've done in Alinea to make a solid cocktail. And this is what we've done with the gin and tonic. Um, we've actually made it powdered. Uh, so what we do is we take uh, tapioca maltodextrin, which is a, a, a tapioca starch, uh, a modified tapioca starch, uh, baking soda, powdered sugar, <coughs> citric acid, tincture of quinine, tincture of juniper. So the elements in a gin and tonic are obviously gin and, and tonic, and the element that makes gin really gin is the addition to juniper. So we've tried doing it with gin. The problem is gin has is 45, 40 to 45% alcohol by volume, meaning there's more water, which won't allow it to powder. So in order to do that, we have to use something that has more alcohol and less water. So we use uh, a neutral grain spirit, um, similar to Everclear, but much higher proof. Ever <laughs> what? Um, we use uh, a 95% alcohol by volume spirit uh, and infuse it with juniper. So this is our, our gin, our liquid gin. And then in tonic, tonic is carbonated. So the, introdu the introdu introduction of baking soda and acid makes things fizz in, in, a, in the perception of carbonation. Uh, we have to sweeten the cocktail, so powdered sugar. Um, it also has the addition of cornstarch, so it prevent, prevents it from clumping up. And then the other thing in, in tonic water that makes really the flavor of tonic tonic is uh, quinine, which is a compound that's derived from cinchona, which is a, a bark. So then we take the same high-proof spirit, steep cinchona bark into it, strain it off, and now we have a tincture of cinchona. So this is our, our quinine. Um, flavoring. So we're just, just a game of mixing everything together. It's going to get messy. Mm-hmm. 
gin and tonic. It's actually remarkable how much it genuinely tastes like a gin and tonic, and it starts to fizz in your mouth. And it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty fun. All right, so we opened uh, our second restaurant in mid-April, right at the same time as the aviary. And the concept is every three months, we're going to change the menu, largely based on a geographic location in the world and a date and time. So our opening menu is Paris, 1906, where we replicated a very classic French menu from Chef Auguste Escoffier. Our second menu was a tour of Thailand where we regionally kind of walked our way through Thailand and created a menu that was representative of, of those regions and flavors. Our third menu is going to be childhood. <clears throat> um, specifically, my childhood. And <laughs> that's not me. Um, and our executive chef, Dave Barron. And it turned out that he happened to grow up in Michigan as well, and we're about roughly the same age. So a lot of what we have in our, in our memory, going back to uh, our childhood and food and experiences are, are very similar. One of them uh, is a campfire. Going camping, going fishing with your parents, your friends, your cousins, whatever. Roasting, you know, roasting marshmallows on the fire. So that became like a creative jumping off point for us. And we said, how can we replicate that both aesthetically and flavor profile wise? So what we did is we made uh, logs. So what you see there, and it's kind of hard because it's shadowed on this photo, but those are sweet potato that have been cooked in a syrup with vanilla, a little bit of cinnamon, and blue corn. And the pigments in the blue corn come out and taint the syrup black like squid ink. So whatever you cook in that liquid pulls it in and turns black. So those look like fire logs. Are you going to mix the, the stuff? This is another part of the composition where you see the marshmallows or some apricot some taffy and, and streusel. That tastes like graham cracker. What Christian's doing here, again, back to the tapioca maltodextrin in the, in the alcohol combination. This time we were, Dave and I were sitting around and you know, we, we, we knew what Craig did with, with the tapioca and to make the gin and tonic. And we were like, well, if we're using such a high proof spirit, I wonder if we can light it on fire. <laughs> so Dave ran and got the torch out of the back. And we made a mixture of, initially, it was just this really high-proof spirit, the tapioca maltodextrin, and we waved the torch over it. And sure enough, up come the flames. So now we were thinking about it. Well, maybe that can become the fire on our campfire logs. At first, it didn't taste very good. 
And then we were like, all right, well, really, if we're dealing with powdered sugar, tapioca maltodextrin, and alcohol, what can we put in there to make it taste like something? So, of course, we added vanilla to mimic the marshmallow, a little bit of cinnamon, cinnamon to go with uh, that graham cracker theme. So we made a tincture of vanilla, cinnamon, and this spirit, mix it with the tapioca, add some sugar, and then what you should have is something that when sprinkled over those logs, it's the fire. When it burns, the sugar caramelizes just like it does on the outside of a marshmallow. You're picking up the aroma from the vanilla and the cinnamon, and you have s'mores at the campfire on your table. So another bite that you have in your, uh, your little packet there is a very, very simple uh, example of edible cocktails that, as Craig mentioned before, we've been playing with going back a couple of years now. I'm going to let Craig explain some of the, the techniques that we utilize, whether it be gelling of actual alcohol or alcohol mixtures using the different gelling agents using the different foaming agents to produce foams out of alcohol. Um, and in this case, well, I'll let him explain what this is, but this is another technique. I'm not going to walk around and card everybody. <laughs> I'm just going to trust that you're mature enough to handle that. There's a little bit of booze in there, okay? It's, it's his fault, not mine. Uh, so, as Chef said, we started playing around with edible cocktails, and they were um, the amuse at uh, Adelinia for a little over a year. Um, and the, the, the slide above me is the, the array. You, you, you would get five of them. So starting on uh, your left, um, it's a hurricane. It's a New Orleans tiki cocktail. It's served inside of a passion fruit. We use the seeds to add texture to the cocktail. Uh, the next one down is a frozen and chewy pisco sour. So we take pisco, which is a grape distillate indigenous to Peru. Um, if you're Peruvian, if you're not, it's indigenous to, next, to Chile, if you're Chilean. Um, we take the, the pisco, we add um, a modified um, tapioca starch called Ultratex 3. Um, we take lemon juice, sugar, and we thicken that as well. So Ultratex 3 essentially allows something to thick without heating it. You just whisk this powder in and it becomes thick like a fluid gel. So we put this, these two fluid gels on the anti-griddle and it gets really, really cold. Since it's so thick, it doesn't actually freeze because of the sugar contents and because of the viscosity. So it appears to be really, really cold, and then you put it in your mouth, it's not really frozen, it's just really, really cold, and it perceives to be chewy. Um, so then you actually chew your pisco sour. The next one down is an example of the pineapple you have in front of you. Um, the cocktail on the screen is called the Juliet and Romeo. It's from a bar in, in Chicago called the Violet Hour. It's a compressed cucumber and gin. 
Um, so whenever in the culinary world when things are called compressed, you put it in, a, you put a, a piece of fruits or a vegetable or, or whatever your solid element is in a liquid inside of a cryovac machine. When you put it in a cryovac machine, it pulls a vacuum, it sucks all the air out of the piece of fruit and replaces it with the liquid it is sitting in. So the bite you should be chewing on now, if you haven't already, is pineapple that's compressed with green chartreuse. Green chartreuse is an herbal liqueur from France. It's uh, made from uh, 130 different botanicals. Um, so this is a way of implementing alcohol into a solid by, through the use of compression. The next one down the line is the Manhattan. We take a, a house-made brandied cherry um, we do a pudding of Carpano Antica Sweet Vermouth using the Ultratex 3, and we use a foaming agent called soy lecithin um, and bourbon. We take Buffalo Trace and soy lecithin. It allows air to be trapped inside the, the structure of the liquid as it's aerated, and we foam on top. And then finally, the last one is, uh, is a Sazerac. Um, it's, a, it's a hollowed out uh, cone feed kumquat. Inside of it is set with a gel using gelatin um, of rye whiskey, and on top, peychaud puddings using agar agar, um, micro anise hyssop to mimic your absinthe, and then a lemon peel to mimic the lemon peel. Um, so these are just a variety of different textures that we've played around with when, when manipulating cocktails to, to, to show something that is not the norm. And this is a larger picture of the Sazerac. Uh, this is an eggnog. Um, it's a technique that's been used at uh, Alinea for, for a number of years where uh, we take an ice cube tray, uh, a sphere ice cube tray, we fill them with a liquid. We take that ice cube tray, we, we pop them out, so now we've got a bunch of frozen sphere ice cubes. We dip that in a mixture of flavored micrio. Micrio is a, a high fat content uh, cocoa butter. When you dip something frozen in something that's made out of fat, it solidifies. So we take this solid frozen ball, we dip it in warm micrio or cocoa butter. The, the cocoa butter solidifies to the outside of the frozen ball. We let the ball sit out at room temperature and melt. So now the inside, the ice, has melted, but cocoa butter will stay a solid at room temperature. So now you have a solid, crunchy outside and a liquid center. So we take uh, an anglaise, which is your, your ice cream base. We've added um, rye whiskey and brandy to it, froze it, dipped it in micrio, and then served it with an eggnog foam and, uh, and a cinnamon pudding. So that's another form of edible cocktail. That's all we have for you. Thanks very much. Uh, so we have time for some questions. I will repeat them because I don't have the microphones. Do you have microphones? In the 60s, I came to MIT as a graduate student of organic chemistry. 
I had to heat my lunch, and I asked my lab mate to wake up and heat my lunch. He said, go downstairs in the basement. There's a little box. Just put your lunch in there, push the button, and it, it, it will heat it up. I said, what is it? He says, it's a microwave. I go down, heat it up, come up, and my bread got very rubbery. I said, what kind of oven is that? Nobody's going to use this. Mm -hmm. And this is, now everybody has the microwave oven in their house. How long is it going to take before <laughs> the <laughs> When they, when they make them cheaper. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing, is what did that microwave cost back then? Because this is probably $10,000, $12,000. What? So, you don't have a rotovap in your house? <laughs> <laughs> I thought everybody did. No, we went to there every day. I'm surprised how much, the question is, how much do you use this apparatus in cooking nowadays, in most of the advanced restaurants? Right, I would say probably 10 restaurants, maybe, in the country have them. All right, we have three. Uh, hello, Mr. Uh, Katz. Uh, I'm a student uh, at, here in the class at Harvard, and I just want to say thank you very much for, for coming. You're welcome. Um, I have two questions. One, uh, why the name Avery for okay. your uh, bar? Uh, and two, um, are there any challenges uh, that you faced in terms of, uh, I don't know, the physical, uh, trying to create something that you haven't been able to master or things that you are, I don't know, issues that you're still kind of grappling with either scientifically or aesthetically to, uh, I don't know, that you'd like to have figured out but haven't been able to? Um, aviary because we just, we liked the way it sounded. <laughs> uh, we wanted to begin with an A because the linear begins with an A. That was really about it. There wasn't a whole lot. Of, there wasn't a whole lot of logic behind that. Um, help me out here, but I, there's a couple of issues that that not issues, but a couple of creative directions that we would like to try to figure out that we really haven't yet. Um, one would be the intense layering of liquids based on density, alcohol, sugar, that sort of thing. Um, figuring out a way if there's a, a way to layer them vertically instead of just horizontally. Um, so that way as you're pouring, as liquid's dumping over your palate, you might be getting cherry here, lemon here, celery here. Um, snow. Anybody can make snow. I got a job for you. <laughs> yeah. Snow or ice that sinks. Right. Because of a big problem in drinking cocktails, you always get hit in the face when you drink out of a, but if the ice was could sink and right. stay at the bottom. The other thing that we've been toying with for a long time is making a, a cocktail that appears to look like a lava lamp. So you would have your base liquid in the glass and then you would have this kind of, you know, gelated or, or thickened some other flavor that's kind of dancing around the glass. You know how like the lava lamp goes like that. Um, we haven't really been able to figure that out yet. <laughs> So guys, Sorry, you know sure. that all the students in the class have to do a final project, and I suggest you recommend these tomorrow yeah. in class, because this is exactly the sort of thing they can help you with. I'm not sure how productive they'll be. They'll be drinking the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> but they'll have a great time. It's a fun class. Um, so my question is, uh, for actually each of you, you go into a bar, 
I mean, a decent bar, uh -huh. and you have to order a cocktail or um, straight liquor. What do you choose for your go-to cocktail, and what is your go-to straight liquor? Uh, Jeff? <laughs> uh, go-to cocktail would be a daiquiri. Um, it's uh, one of the most basic cocktails, one of the hardest ones to make, because it's just uh, rum, lime juice, and sugar. And rum comes from sugar, so you have a drink that's got sugar and lime juice in it. So it's a balance perfectly sugar, acid, and alcohol in something so simple that you can't hide behind. Um, is one way to actually determine your bartender. So it's always, generally, the, if I go to a bar I've never been to, I always order a daiquiri first. Because if the daiquiri, to me, is too acidic, I know how to order my next cocktail. Because now I know the bartender's palate. He tends acidic. If his uh, daiquiri is too sweet, then I know how to order my next cocktail because his palate tends too sweet for mine. Um, and then as far as spirits, uh, bourbon. <laughs> I don't really have a favorite, you know? I mean, you know, I like Negronis, and if, I, if you had to nail me down to a spirit, it would probably be like chartreuse or something like that. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Chef. Uh, Welcome. I was curious how you set up your kitchen for me. So you said you uh, model your bar kitchen based off of a culinary kitchen. I was curious uh, what sort of stations you have um, in your uh, bar degree. Well, it, there's five positions on on the drink on the drink island, and they're all. Well, why don't you explain? But basically, they're we have the ability to put five drink makers on on the bar, quote unquote, and they like Craig said, they're all each station is customized based on what drink in in the menu in the repertoire that they have to produce. So, so, so there's no dealer's choice. Um, we give you a menu, say the menu has 30 different cocktails on it, there's five stations, 30 cocktails, everybody gets six. So you make the same six drinks, just like when you go to a restaurant, you don't say, you know what, I feel like having something with ground beef and potatoes, make me something. You know, so we don't, we limit what we offer to what we f can stand behind and we feel comfortable doing. So even though there may be gin in one cocktail and tonic in another cocktail, you can't order a gin and tonic. Um, Largely not because I think there's anything wrong with the gin and tonic. Um, it's because we don't want to attach our name to something that we don't feel comfortable giving to somebody and saying this produces an experience we want you to have. So just pouring gin and tonic water in a glass isn't the kind of experience that we want to showcase and offer to you when you come into our restaurant or bar. We just won't do it. So. We've limited to the stations aren't like one station picks up all the carbonated cocktails, one station picks up all the sours. It's more of um, they're broken up based on workload and proximity to equipment they need in, in the kitchen. So if somebody needs to get something out of the, the, the freezer, their station that's near the freezer picks up that drink. So it's not an inefficient way of the person over here has to go over here to get that elements or ice or glass or whatever. Um, but the, there's, they're not broken as literally down to a meat cook, fish cook, saucier, plater, and so on and so forth. Hi. Um, Hi. So I really like the idea of a restaurant that um, kind of manipulates your emotions and memories as you eat, because food is so powerful. 
Um, so what do you think of just in general using food to provide more than you know, nutrition, using food to actually play with someone's memory and emotions? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that really is what Alindia was founded on in 2005. We said that we were trying to craft a very emotional experience, and it just so happened that we were using food to do it. Um, and taking that a step further, we're in the process of creating an exhibit uh, for the Museum of Contemporary Art that I think will even push that even further, so. Well, I love all these scientific experiments and the beauty of it, and these are wonderful things on the palette. Have you grappled with taking a, a pure liquid, like a single malt scotch, a beautiful single malt scotch, and extrapolating the flavors maybe and finding the perfect way to experience it without mixing it um, with other flavors? Um, well, the, the difficulty behind that is perfect is subjective. So I may think it's perfect neat. You may think it's perfect at 45 degrees Celsius. I may like it at 55 degrees Celsius. I may like it with one ice cube. You may like it with one large ice cube. You may like it with crushed ice. You might. So what we've done, though, is we have um, a flights on our menu. And this is another glass that Martin Kastner's made. We do a, um, a barrel-aged flight of martinis. So a martini, classic gin martini, gin, sweet vermouth, or excuse me, gin, dry vermouth, and orange bitters, we take it, we put them in a uh, nine liter used bourbon barrel, age them for a period of time, and then serve them in a flight. And what we did is we've taken that, that liquid and put them in every glass that Alinea had to offer, which th that we gotta have 100 yeah. different kinds of glasses. Yeah. Um, and Martin actually made a glass that has based on the diameter of the, no, the, the mouth to the amount of space that's left, the amount, of, the amount of negative space that's not full by a liquid to the thickness of the glass to, the, to every aspect of the, um, the service piece in what he feels is the most, the optimal way to enjoy that particular cocktail. So that glass is really made only for that flight and we, we call it a tasting glass. Um, but as far as to make the single malt scotch, I would think it'd be perfect just serving it neat. Um, so a question about the service component of a cocktail. Um, in the traditional sense, you have your bartender and your guest. And you discuss with the bartender what you like, what you don't like, and then you get to see the making of a cocktail. Mm -hmm. I understand in this case, you want to approach it more like a kitchen where there's, there's that like presented component, it's brought to the guests, and then you have that interaction. How do you battle that? I mean, because I feel like that's a very crucial part of a traditional bar and traditional bar service. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of not lose that because you have like interactive cocktails, but right. how do you guys approach that in your way without losing that critical component, in my opinion? Well, that's where the front of the house comes into play. I mean, they're really our, li our liaison for articulating, finishing, explaining the, the the thought process behind the drink, the best way to consume it, that sort of thing. And then we also have a very transparent, didn't really show it that well, but it's, a, it's an open kitchen. So you could, in theory, walk up to the wall and watch the drink makers prepare the cocktail. Yeah. But in the same idea that when, okay, so you go to a bar and the bartender makes you a cocktail. The function of the bartender is to one, entertain you, 
two, make you a drink, and three, collect payment for that drink. Uh, at, at Aviary, the, our bartenders only do one of those three jobs. We just make you the drink. We don't have to entertain you, nor do we have to collect your money. So in theory, they're spending more time doing one of the three things, that, which should, in theory, be more consistent and, and more, uh, and I don't want to say better, cause then, but it, it should be more their, it's their, their primary focus. So they spend all day prepping the same cocktail. They, sp they spend all day plating the same six drinks. Um, where it's based, it's not our, uh, our uh, we're trying to be the anti-normal bar, but it's a way to make um, the product we're, we're putting out the best that we possibly can. Um, and coming from the, the kitchen background, there's very few places we actually go sit down in front of the kitchen and order from the meat cook who's going to then cook your meat. Um, so. Okay, so let's uh, thank both of these gentlemen one more time. <laughs>